Here's what I'm going to do tonight. I'm going to wrap up our series on hell by revisiting two things. We're not really reviewing them. We're actually going to critique them. And that is, we've talked about universalism and annihilationism. We've presented them, but we really didn't talk about some of the pushback to them. So we're just going to do that briefly tonight, and then we're going to conclude. I say briefly in an exodus sort of way. All right? So let's go straight there. This is where we've been. We've talked about the traditional view for a number of weeks. We looked at universalism and annihilationism. And tonight I want to make some sense out of it and end with some actual application of this material. All right? But let me go back to universalism. So this slide is to remind you, if you don't quite remember what the universalism is, it's that idea we focused on Christian universalism as opposed to secular universalism or, you know, kind of a pluralistic form which just says that kind of everybody's saved and all roads lead to God and somehow we focused on Christian universalism, which we could define this way. You might call it post-mortem salvationism. Somehow it's a way that God is still going to deal in a salvific way with people who don't find Christ in this life. All right, so it's almost like you could call it like he's going to save everybody somehow, whether you found Christ or not. Now, some people would say, well, then what's the point of finding Christ in this life? A universalist would say, because first, there's the joy of just knowing the Lord and serving him because he's the king, and that's enough. But you get to bypass all the other things that happen and go straight to heaven would be the answer. What happens to everybody else? Well, answers kind of vary, as with all things theology, but some people say there's a second chance to accept Christ. That's a small group. There's also a small group that just think everybody's just saved anyway. It doesn't really matter. But the majority of universalists, I would say a large majority, still believe in hell and that you'll go there as punishment, but that you will then eventually pay your dues and then get to go to heaven. So you might think of it as, a form of purgatory, although not that doctrine, not the Catholic version of it, they would just say there is punishment, it is, might be a purifying place, it might be a place where you learn things, you know, some people say is it a prison, is it a school, is it a sanitarium, I don't know. But that's the view. Now, this is all in review. What I want to do right now is show something we didn't have time to do to kind of wrap it up. We showed the text that's, that universalists use to support this view. And my only comment, if you don't want to look at a bunch of verses tonight, just hear what I'm about to say right now. In fairness, because we didn't have time to critique it fully, I want to say that for every verse the universalist puts up saying this might support a universalist view, it seems that the same author of the same book that's being cited would have a contradictory statement in the same book or letter just by way of example. I'm going to just throw about three or four examples. I'm not going to go through all the ones we went through. Because I'm not here to try to just convince you of something. What I want you to know is, okay, I understand what a universalist might think. Why might I not think that that's true? And I would say that there's a lot of theological reasons that we couldn't go into in a series because hundreds of books have been written about it. We can't cover it all. But in this series, we've mainly focused on the textual reasons. In other words, what scripture does that position cite? So here's an example. For example, universalists will say that John 12.32 is one of those verses that supports universalism. Jesus says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Okay? We critiqued it, of course, for what it might mean in its context. But just take it at face value for a moment, plucked off the pages of scripture, if you saw this, what I want you to be aware of, for example, is that John also has these same verses 
that would kind of rub against this verse in the same book. So the position usually is, how can an author be so you know, double-minded? He can't really support universalism in one place and kind of the opposite in a different place, so he must not really be supporting it. For example, John 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So if you're going to stick to the, he's supposed to draw all men to himself, there's this kind of dichotomy based solely on whether you believe in him or not. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Okay, just a juxtaposition to show that these texts are not quite clear where somebody says, look, there's this verse in John. Sure, but there's like 20 others that might go the other way. And I say might intentionally. Here's another verse that we studied when we looked at universalism, 1 Corinthians 5.22. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But notice Paul in the same letter in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, kind of pushes back about the idea of everybody being saved. In fact, he starts naming specific sins, talking about inheritance and not. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, no men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. If you're paying attention, you might think, well, then nobody's going to inherit the kingdom of God. That's number one. Um, and number two, you might say, but he's really kind of setting up a test of what you are doing or not doing. Is that really the same thing as salvation? And again, all I'm trying to point out is, that if you're going to say, I believe in a universalist position because Paul supports it, look at verse 22 in chapter 15, you go, hey, not so fast. You have to deal with a lot of what Paul says, and he does often make a distinction about who's going to inherit the kingdom and who's not. He doesn't seem to ever support an idea that, well, don't worry about it, everyone's going to eventually get there. It doesn't seem to be present. Second Peter 3.9, we said that, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Your comments were, well, wait a minute, that's what he wants. That doesn't mean he's going to make it happen. Others of you pushed back and said, well, wait a minute, if he wants it, isn't it going to happen? So some people cling to this and say, if you believe in a sovereign God who wants this to happen, it's going to happen. All people will come to repentance, and no one will perish. Again, same letter. This is 2 Peter 2, verses 4 through 9. It's a long verse. I'm just going to give you the highlight. What is argued here by the author is if he didn't spare the angels, if he didn't spare the people at the time of Noah, if he didn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah, and notice in each example he says, but there are some people he spared. Then he ends with, if this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. All right, I can almost hear the universal say, yeah, but it doesn't, nobody said that we're not going to punishment. All it says, all we're saying is that at the end of that period of punishment, they'll find eternal life. Okay, but again, it's, you have to infer it. It's not expressly stated. Last one, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world contrasted with 
Again, a statement from 1 John 5, 10 through 12. Whoever believes in the Son accepts his testimony. Whoever does not believe, God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony of God, that God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. So once again, if you're going to cite the first verse and say, I think that 1 John 2.2 gives us an indication that his sacrifice is supposed to be universal, there seems to be a focus here. The other thing that critics of universalism would say is that, you know, if you read the New Testament, there is so much of an emphasis on making a decision with what you're doing with your life now. Nobody ever seems to imply that you can make the decision at any other point. So fair point, I think, to at least raise that that's one of the arguments that's pushed back on with universalism. Okay? Now, I'm going to select what I think the best point is that universalists make. Because someone asked me, well, what do you think of universalism? And I'd say, I think they actually have some points that make sense. I think this is the best point I've studied so far. And you remember this from looking at Matthew 25, 46, where we said, that they will go away to eternal punishment and the righteous will go away to eternal life. So he's making a contrast and many, many traditional view people think, look, if you believe that heaven's forever, then hell's forever. It's right here. It's a parallel. And we said during that night when we talked about universalism that actually, if you look carefully at the Greek language, the word ionios, which is used here, comes closest to meaning an age or an epoch or an eon, but not a never-ending period. It might be indefinite, it might be very, very long, but there is a word we said, iodios, or some of you who smirked and said, I think it means adios, right? Isn't that what it is? <laughs> right. That could mean without end, and that word was not used. I raise this because I think if universalists have contributed anything to the conversation, I think, first of all, it's maybe our view about heaven or about eternal life is just something that we kind of think about from our perspective and have never thought about, huh, maybe there is an end to it. The only thing I'd push back on that is that even though it's a good point that Universalist makes, it actually kind of supports annihilationists even more than it supports their view. But again, most of them would say, yes, we believe in hell. Yes, we believe it's there. We just believe that at the end of it, we get to join the party like everybody else after we get out of timeout. Okay? Let me push back a little bit on annihilationism. That was what Morgan presented to us, what is also called the conditional view. I've summarized it up here to kind of catch us up uh, in case you missed what it was. Uh, annihilationism is the belief for those who reject God are sent to hell. Their damnation is not eternal but instead only for a time, ending in the complete destruction of one's body and soul. Very similar to the universalist idea is that hell is not eternal, but the ending comes out differently. A universalist says, and then somehow they're purified or they've paid their penalty and they join everyone else. They have a chance for salvation, something like that. But in this view, once that's over, they're just annihilated. The question for annihilationists, the, the difference between them is the duration. Some people think you're just annihilated immediately at judgment. Most believe that there's a duration that you spend in hell before you're finally annihilated. Um, this was a quote that 
Morgan gave us from Clark Pinnock because he was trying to explain why is this view called the conditional view. And I think this is one of their better points, by the way. The Bible teaches conditionalism. God created humans mortal with the capacity for everlasting life, but it is not their inherent possession. Immortality is a gift God offers us in the gospel, not an inalienable possession. The soul is not an immortal substance that has to be placed somewhere if it rejects God. In other words, we learned together, one of the greater points was maybe our view of the soul, once it's created, never being extinguished, is actually not a biblical view at all. God could extinguish anything he creates, including the soul. So it isn't that, hey, once you have a soul, you've got to put it somewhere. God could end it, just like he created it. Uh, and that our existence, our sustenance, and even our continuation is sustained by God. So I think that was a good view to bring up. When we looked at the textual points, you'll remember that the main thing that an annihilationist will point out is that the vast majority of New Testament texts that deal with the fate of the wicked do not talk about hell. They talk about destruction. So their concept is if you want to know what punishment is, even eternal punishment, it's destruction. Yes, there might be suffering or penance or purification or whatever goes on in hell, but at the end, it's lights out and you're annihilated. These are some of the verses that we looked at. Philippians 3.19, their destiny is destruction. 2 Peter 3.7, talking about destruction. Being kept for a day of judgment and destruction of ungodly people. We looked at 2 Thessalonians 1.9. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. And so on and so on. The key word that we focused on was destruction. Even Romans 6.23 often cited, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there's this kind of contrast, life and death. My comments about annihilationism actually really focus on the word destruction. If you read this in English, this is very tempting to just say, right, destruction. It sounds like the overwhelming view is destruction. It's just not that clear. Let's take the first two verses. If you take the first two verses and we look at the word that's used for destruction here, it's apolia. So we get out of the English, we look at the Greek root, and we think, what does this word mean? But it doesn't really help much. Most, by a, by a majority, but maybe only because this is the prevailing view, most scholars believe that apolia means ruin as opposed to extinction and annihilation. So it's often translated as destruction. But take a look at this example. For exa Here's another way that we translate this in 1 Timothy 6.9. When we're talking about the abuses of money, it says, Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and apolia. It would be weird to translate that verse and say that people who fall into the trap of temptation over money are annihilated and cease to exist. So... The word has often been used in the New Testament by the same writer to mean ruin. And actually, that's its most common meaning. I will say, in fairness, that doesn't totally solve the issue. Because some people say, no, the passages that talk about judgment seem to imply more of a destruction. That's the comeback, at least. Same thing with this verse that we just looked at, 2 Thessalonians 1.9. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. 
A traditionalist will push back and say, wait a minute, you can't be everlastingly destroyed and then still be shut out. There's nothing to shut out. Okay? That sounds like a good comeback. The problem is the word and shut out is actually inserted in English and it's not in the original. It's, the original reads like this. They'll be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. Which means you could read that as saying that the presence of the Lord is what creates the everlasting destruction. In other words, being in the presence of the Lord in, your, in a state of sin could destroy you everlastingly. But that's only one reading of it. People are fighting over what it means. And that's why the thing I keep coming back to is we think, oh, I know, because Cormac and I had this conversation when we finished annihilationism, and I said to him, like, annihilationism sounds good. We like it because it just sounds better somehow than some sort of eternal conscious torment in hell. We like the idea that it's somehow temporally bound. As awful as it would still be, at least it has an ending. And so many people like this view because it appeals to our sensibilities of what God should be like. The problem with it is, although more and more people are adopting it, I would say that it's not expressly stated anywhere in the scripture. I think it's not, I wouldn't say it's a leap. I'd say we're splitting the camps. Because even when you come to look at this word for destruction in this verse, alethros, it's still debated between people who are far smarter than me and have studied languages for a long, long time as to whether the proper interpretation is an annihilation that means you literally cease to exist, or is it just a calamitous, destructive ruin that you've brought upon yourself? And again, I'll say, for the majority are still in the calamitous, destructive ruin. But for people who just want to hear annihilationism no matter what, they'll say, well, that's because that's been the traditional view for so long and we're winning people over daily. Okay, for people like us, you're going to, in a moment, we'll get to the application. It may not matter. Maybe that's not the reason we did the series, to become Greek scholars on which one it is. If you want an example, here's one. Take 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5. In this verse, Paul is talking about a person who is fighting with their sinful nature and refuses to change. And he says, hand this man over to Satan for destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. He uses the same Greek word, alethros, for destruction. The context would make no sense to say, hand him over for utter annihilation, because if that were the case, what would be left there for to be saved on the day of the Lord? Now, I read a long, long article that just debated these two words over and over and over, and I realized, like, you guys probably don't care. There's just too much debate. And I don't know that it matters so much to the point of our series. But I do want to be fair. Some of us want these words to mean what would make us feel good. And the, and the answer is, it's just not that clear. For every person who says, no, this means destruction, like in other words, extinction, and you're annihilated, most people would say, you know what, that's not the plain reading of it. You kind of got to stretch to get there. The more likely reading is calamitous ruin. And that's been the interpretation for a long time. It doesn't mean it has to stay that way. But you've got the burden of proof to show that it should change. And we have to acknowledge that if we don't see an express teaching to say that, 
we're kind of pushing the envelope a little bit to get us there. That's the view. Let's talk about the best point the annihilations make. I think the one that Morgan raised that kind of got most of us really interested was the view that the soul is not immortal. And I have to say that it probably even tweaks my own thinking because I don't even know that I stopped to think about it ever. But it just seems like somewhere in the back of our mind we had just been sold that idea that, you know, once you're born, there's a soul, and that's it. Like, it can't go away, which really, even if you, without any scriptural support, makes no sense. If you sat and thought about it, like, why would the thing that was created be able to withstand its own creator? The verse that Morgan cited, 1 Timothy 6.15, the second part of it to verse 16 God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light. He alone is immortal. So their next best point, other than tweaking our thinking about what the immortality of the soul may or may not be, their next best point, I think, is that, you know, we should pay attention to the fact that destruction is found so often most of the time when we're looking for verses on hell, many of us look for the word hell. But to actually stop and count the number of times the word death, destruction, and those things are used is really somewhat telling to us in Scripture. Those are the pushback points. So, why do we do this series? I always have to face that question at the beginning and at the end. At the beginning, I'm trying to justify why we would spend all this time. And at the end, when I look at a series of war-weary faces in any series that we've done, I'm asking myself the same question, like, was any of this worth it? So let me make these points that I think might help us to think. Morgan raised some arguments that were made by Pinnock, I believe, about the traditional view. And we raised them from the very beginning. But they were stated really well, so I'm just going to put them on the screen. They're the moral argument and the justice argument. Before you read them, do you feel this tension? Do you know people who feel this tension? Is this the problem with this whole doctrine for us? So here it is. The moral argument. The Bible shows God, as revealed most powerfully through Jesus Christ, to be boundlessly merciful. He is forgiving and loving. What would the goodness of God mean if God torments people everlastingly? I suppose one might be afraid of him, but could we love and respect him? Would we want to strive to be like him in his mercilessness? Essentially, how do we make sense of God's mercy if God tortures people endlessly in hell? And I think at the root of it, that question from the beginning of the series until now is unresolved. I don't know if it troubles you. You tell me if it does. But that's the moral argument that comes out of it. Side by side with a justice argument very related to it, which is, how seems to disrupt our sense of justice, even justice that's established in the scriptures? Maybe the word that we searched for is proportionality. It seems like the eternal penalty of the traditional view seems to be too much for the temporal sins of people. That's the view. Anyone want to comment on these? Do you still feel this tension? Do you even think that they're correct in their assertion? We already had some people who said, like, it doesn't matter. God can do whatever he wants. Yeah, I just want to say, I think they still have some force. I mean, and I think, I think he will 
states what bothers a lot of people. I think some of these alternate views at least help to make sense of that. Um, I don't know if that's the right motivation necessarily to, to believe something differently, but you know, I, I think one of the things that this series has made me think about, what are these, um, what are the non-negotiables of faith? You know, what, what do we think are, are these, these pillars? Um, for me, I, I don't know if it ever has been, but it's certainly not after this series would I say our view on hell is a pillar of faith, you know, where, you know, if that's shaken, the whole, the whole thing's done, where I, I say that about the cross or about, you know, the centrality of Christ or, or these things that I would say, yeah, that's, that's something I, I just absolutely won't accept. <laughs> something different, I think. I think the faith, that's at the core of it. So I think in that case, even being able to teach somebody that there are different views, I think there are even orthodox positions for all three of them, even if they're not the majority. I, I think that's still helpful, especially to people who are wanting to see who is this God and, and you know, what's going on here. I wouldn't want to stake my claim on, on, on certain parts of the doctrine of hell that that would watch people you know, run for the hills. I wouldn't want to do that personally. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think he states it well. Like, obviously some people are going to have these issues and are going to agree with it. So that kind of validates, like I validate why people would feel this way. It's valid that they might have this question. But um, he makes assumptions. And in my mind, I'm like, who cares what people think? Like when he says, like, could you respect God? Like, could you, if he did this, or could you still love him? You'd probably just fear him, but would you? And I just feel like that's kind of going out on a limb. It's like an assumption. And maybe he couldn't, which is why he clings to that. But I could. I don't have a problem with it. And so I don't, I fear God. I have a lot of respect for him, but I'm not afraid of him. And I still love him. And if he doesn't fit into my box of to what like I think or makes me comfortable, it doesn't throw it out for me. So that's the main issue I have with the moral argument, that somehow not accepting that there's, um, or accepting that there's a hell means that I then feel all those things. It's kind of interesting because I feel like there are two levels of what we have to kind of rationalize here. The first level is what can I live with just myself as a faith-filled person who believes in Christ, who loves God? like. What can I make peace with? But I think the other thing we all have to face is how do we defend that? How do we say to people like, yeah, well, you know, I do believe that God will condemn you. I do believe that there's a place of torture and torment, but that God is still loving. How do you justify that to somebody who would not have an easy enough time just kind of accepting it, that those things slip in tension? I think that for us, that's like almost the point. Part of the whole reason this, this subject troubles people and is so interesting to people as of late is because we're kind of concerned with how it sells. We're kind of concerned with how other people can react to it. And maybe sells is too crass of a word, but we are concerned in some way with how people are going to be able to hear the gospel or give it even a hearing at all if this stands as an obstacle to them. But there is a fallacy in that, I think. And the fallacy is, if this is true, whatever it is, whatever this is, but let's say for a moment, let's take the traditional view. If there is a hell where anybody who is not saved in this life, on this side of death, is going to eternal conscious torment, if that's true, it wouldn't matter how it sells. Now, the problem, of course, is we don't know how we would know if it was true. 
other than what we've been doing, which is searching scriptures and seeing that different scriptures actually take slightly different positions so that nobody here is completely outside the bounds, right? People are actually trying to search the same scriptures and they're coming to different conclusions. And that's why I think that what Morgan said is you can see it from a different light now. You can see that it might not be a, like a non-negotiable because everyone is honestly wrestling with the same text and trying to come up with it. But it's still a fallacy because ultimately maybe any of them would be heinous to somebody. Let me ask it this way. Take the universalist view or the annihilationist view. What if hell was only like uh, 30 years instead of forever? What if it was 20 years? 10? 5? What if it was a year? How many of us would be able to sell it any better if you go, well, you go to a conscious torment, oh, not eternal, it's a year of torment in hell. No, it doesn't have fire, but it's like the worst thing imaginable. People are screaming all day long. That's not going to help sell it, right? That's not going to make it any better. So our real inquiry at the end of the day is to say, do we believe, as all of these views believe, that it's there in some form, what we're really arguing about in some way, is duration and outcome, at least among these views. There are some views we didn't go into, but I think I wanted to keep it into the majority camps that are still struggling um, with the scriptures themselves to come up with these. Monique. That's kind of the most interesting thing that I've pulled out of this and that I've noticed is that those views don't address like God punishing, really. It just addresses, like you said, duration, because they most of them believe that there's some form of hell, which I find very interesting, because I would think that if you were an annihilationist, the most popular view would be God just doesn't torment, you're just done. And so if it's true that most Christian annihilationists believe that there's some duration of hell and then it's done, is that because there's so much scripture that talks about like a type of torment so they can't get away from it? Is that why? That's a good way to summarize it. The majority of them would say that you can't exegetically, like with any kind of like doing justice to the text method of reading and interpreting, just say, actually, there's just nothing there, and we would just be annihilated. Even though, you know, you could think there's some that will, right? They're still trying to be true to the text, that read the destruction verses as involving no punishment, just judgment to destruction right away. Most of them say mm, that there's just too many verses about warnings and all those kinds of things, and about the suffering. And, to be fair, annihilationists also struggle with justice, because they would think, where is the justice? And just showing up to judgment going, oh, oh, I was wrong? You know, and it's over. Like, where would the justice be in that? And they could think of monsters from Hitler to Stalin to, you know, all the way down. Or just, hey, I lived my life trying to do this or that and somebody else didn't and the only outcome is they just don't even have any conscious idea of what happened. So everyone struggles with the morality and the justice, right? And so even though here Pinnock, who is an annihilationist, is posing moral and justice arguments for the traditionalists, he himself is very aware of these things and says that, you know, I, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I would bet you would say, yeah, it would probably bother me if there was nothing, just immediate annihilation, but he would still pick that over eternal conscious torment. But the justice that they sort of still cling to in a way, like you're saying, like they don't want to get away or do away with it completely, in their mind still involves some kind of pain 
Because like I think about in this world, I think about prison, which is terrible. You're separated from society, so maybe being separated from God, that feeling if they think that's what hell is, is this horrific thing, which I imagine it really is if it's not really fire or whatever. But like if there is some other type of punishment that they want in there, even if it's for a small duration, is still kind of brutal and Right, I think it doesn't solve the problem. Well, I also think there's a problem with that because it's like they're eventually going to be annihilated anyways. It's not like they have to live with the guilt of what they did. Like, so why does it matter when it happens? Like, if it's just going to end, in, you know? There's a lot of things we won't be able to know. One of them is what is the sinking feeling going to be like of being a lifelong denier of God, and then showing up in God's presence? What is that like? Forget what happens the next moment. Just what is that moment like? What is the moment like when you realize that everything you thought was not only wrong, but it was just wrong at a level you can't comprehend? It's all going to be beyond comprehension, but what is that going to be like? I mean, is that by itself? Or is it just worse than anything you could ever imagine, and then whatever happens in the moments after that just goes from there? In fact, what I want you to do for a moment is ask yourself some of these questions, some mind-expanding questions just based on things we've studied in this series that I've called through. And I don't even know that you need to answer. You can if you want to, but I think that we should take a moment to just ask things that we could have learned from studying all this. Could our view of eternity as never ending be of our own making? Could that view from annihilationism be somewhat right about the fact that we just believe that it's forever and ever? I will say in fairness that people even critique their view of the Greek there and say no, that never-ending really is never-ending, even though that word is used. But in fairness, let's take, let's take their point and say, okay, does that change anything in your mind? Yes. That idea is a really big idea, and I think it's, it's really a troubling idea. Because for me, more than anything else, I mean, that really shakes, or it, for me, it shook the kind of question or the idea of just my soul is going to exist forever. I mean, if this kind of platonic influence at least should be questioned, right? Then, and if I'm looking back to an earlier Hebrew or an earlier Jewish perspective, and then if I can see like where other faiths interacted with the Jews and influenced their thinking and other peoples and other philosophies, you know, it brings a legitimate question. And this view of eternity, if it tweaks us a little bit as not being never-ending, would apply equally to heaven and hell. It's tweaked my view of thinking that, you know, I've always thought of heaven as never ending. And so there's an if here. If the critique of the texts in Matthew are correct, that it really doesn't mean without end, it just means for a very, very, very long time, that tweaks even our view of heaven. And someone else would point out that they don't have to be equal, they don't have to be coterminous. You know, hell could be short and heaven could be longer, but they both could have an ending, which in some way is kind of a relief. <laughs> like, who we do there forever and ever and ever? I don't know. But so in some way, it could be like, whew. all right. Here's another question. Could our view of God's love and mercy be incomplete shortcuts? Think about this. How many times have you heard the word God is love? God is love, right? Which is scriptural, but God is love is the answer to a lot of things, right? I mean, it's the answer to people who don't even believe in anything remotely related to God, right? God is love, and they'll go on and cite some weird belief. But, you know, when a lot of Christians talk about God as love, they're talking about a much, much more deeper reality. It's a way of explaining the interrelationship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, how they could be one. 
that their love is so complete, it's so unifying, it's so self-sacrificing, it's so intimate that they could be one. And that theological concept books have been written on. Just the God is love idea. And yet we use it in a way to say, well, God is love, there's no way he could do this. That's an incomplete shortcut. That's an immature way of taking a snippet, a bumper sticker theology, and trying to apply it to a concept that is much, much bigger. So we have to at least be careful. I'm just asking these out loud for us to think about. Yes? I think this is one of the Samuels, first and second Samuel, but I'm not sure where I read a verse where David says, like, above all, I know that, that God is just, but also I know that he's loving. So it's like kind of those two things in tension. So would it be crazy just to ask people to accept, just if you're on that side of it, that God, there is a tension where God can be completely loving and all of the traditional view, whatever, is kind of true where there's still a hell that exists. Just the same way we might take into tension that salvation is not something we earn, but yet works are still somehow like in the mix of that. So it's like there's tensions all over the Bible. There are tensions everywhere, and especially we try to make tensions out of his characteristics, right. right? Things that we think define God, which, first of all, like love somehow is our version. Mercy somehow relates more to how we'd see it. Justice relates more to how we understand it, right? So first, we don't even get to his level, which we can't. Right. But second, then we're trying to order them in an order that we like. So two times we've already inserted ourselves. Like, if you look at the Old Testament, the only characteristic of God repeated three times is which one? Holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The most emphasized way is to enunciate three times in that alliteration. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. So somebody could argue theologically that holiness is his greatest characteristic over and above everything. And then somebody else will come along and go, no, 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 it's love, right? That's part of the argument. All I'm saying is when we're even doing that exercise, are we so quick to come up with these little shortcuts like, well, but God is merciful. Right, let's spend a few years studying that concept. And I know none of us want to do that. But when you do, then we'd move on to the thing that stands in tension to it. Okay, Jeremy? I don't know if those are real tensions. Um, I don't know if it's the case that God's love is somehow in tension with God's sense of justice. I, I can tell you how my experience of it is, right? But I couldn't tell you, right, without being anthropomorphic, like what God's love or God's justice is. I'm, I'm just talking about it in terms of like my own understanding and my finite nature as a human being. And sometimes I wonder if it, you know, it's almost like a false dilemma. You know, God is either this or that. And it's probably not the case that God is either this or that. And I think that if we look at, and you, you had it up here, and but we haven't talked about it at all, like, if you know, we look at the Christian faith as a revealed faith, and if we look at Jesus Christ as kind of the, the highest point of that revelation, you know, then, then what does that say? About, you know, those things that Jesus says, what does that say about our understanding of God? You know? Not that that's more important than the Hebrew Bible, per se, but what, what, if Jesus spends so much time talking about these certain qualities and characteristics of God's love and the Father, um, you know, how does that relate in terms of a revealed theology? I agree with that, and my point is, off of that, if those complications are there that might even prevent us from being able to ultimately understand them, it just underscores the point that so often we use those very things to somehow defeat arguments about what God can and can't do. We can't even define, really, the characteristics of God in any way that makes sense. 
Look at this next one. Do we take too lightly the penalty of rebellion against a holy God? Here I'm reminded of this when I was reading this. Measured by biblical standards, few of us take sin seriously. As evidence of this, consider God's judgment against what many of us would call little sins. An impressive list can be drawn up. For example, because Lot's wife looked back at Sodom and Gomorrah, she became a pillar of salt. The death penalty for a glance. Because of irregularities in the priestly service in the tabernacle, Nadab and Abihu fell dead before the Lord. Capital punishment for faulty worship. Because Yuza studied the ark with his hand, he just touched it to study it. The Lord's anger burned against him and God struck him down and he died. Punishment of death for trying to keep the ark from falling. Because Ananias and Sapphira lied to the apostles, God struck them dead. Capital punishment for lying. If people lied to us or disobeyed us, would they deserve death? Of course not. If they do these things against God, do they deserve capital punishment? The Bible's consistent answer is yes. Now, I know you could draw and say, well, one thing is this mortal death in this life that's wholly different than what might come as a result of that later. All I want to point out is we take sin far too lightly. And so when we're dealing with what's going to happen, we're kind of taking it from our own sin too lightly. Like, well, I don't know that anything could justify that. But we're really minimizing sin when we do that. Whether you have a problem with hell or not, we first have to have a bigger problem with our own sin. Could we still believe in God if God defied our beliefs about God? If we found out it was true, just, just fell from the sky, and we knew without a doubt that, yeah, he was going to consciously torment people forever, and that was it. And it was going to be fire, Jeremy. It was going to be fire on top of it. I don't know how that would happen. Just go with me in this hypothetical. Could we still believe in God? Or are we going to say, no, I don't believe that you're there, even though that was stated to be true? And the reason I hold that open is I don't know that we could ever answer that question, but we at least need to think, like, am I conditional in my view about God? Does God have to meet my tests? Does he have to meet my standards? Does he have to make sense to me for me to believe in him? Does our belief about who God is interfere with our interpretation of text? Absolutely. And so many of the views we've studied start from there. I can't believe that, and then we study. We're all tempted to do that. We're all tempted to come to issues that, that concern us. I mean, people don't go out there and write dissertations or do certain things unless they're interested in the subject to begin with. And that interest is usually poked by the fact that they're really troubled by something. So we're always taking that with us. We should all think about that whenever we come to anything. I don't know if there's a way to remove it, but being conscious of it is probably the best way to at least mitigate it. Do we take the horror of hell too lightly because we're saved? You know, there are a couple of us in here who've said, like, I don't have a problem with hell. Maybe because we're not going there. That's maybe the attitude. But there are a lot of other people that are. And I think it's very unpopular in our church today to actually say, I think there's a hell. I think people are going there. And I'm going to do something about it. Any one of those three things, especially in combination, you might as well be sent on the short bus to the special class. To say that there is a hell puts you in a minority of people these days. To say that people are going there makes you somehow an elitist or an exclusivist or any kind of ist. And to say that you're going to do something about it makes you insensitive and really subjects you to ridicule. But again, all three of these views believe it's there. 
whether for a short time, a long time, or forever, whether it results in your ultimate salvation or your ultimate annihilation or you just never get out, all of them believe it's there. So it doesn't really help us much to say, well, I'm kind of an annihilation, so eventually it'll be over for those people. I don't think any of us would want to be there for a day. And yet, I feel like even among us when we talk, we have no desire to tell anybody about it at all because there's no surer way to get ridiculed or have your faith made fun of. Okay, that would only make sense if we didn't know or if we just wanted to deny it. But if you believe it in any way, then not doing something about it because you're worried about either of those things, and I'm not saying do it in some crazy way like holding up a sign, but I think most of us are afraid to do it at all. I'm one of them. Let me end with six applications. Only six. Only six. I'll go through them fast. Number one, I think people are always going to be troubled by the concept of hell, regardless of duration or its outcome. I think what we're really troubled with is the consequence of sin and what it means to be saved. Heather hit it on the head right from the very beginning when she said, I don't know how we could talk about this subject without talking about salvation. We will still always continue to do that. But I think ultimately, the consequence of sin and who and how people are saved is always really the ultimate root of this. Second, hell is emphasized in scripture more than some of us want to believe and less than others of us want to believe. I think some of us went into this thing just thinking like, ah, I don't know. But there is a lot of discussion about hell, especially if you start to bring in the passages about destruction. Then there's a lot to talk about hell. And yet, there are others who think like hell is all over the place and it's totally clear. And I think if anything, if you've seen these verses, it's not the main emphasis of scripture by a long shot and it's not as clear. Even with my hedo meter, the fire meter, it could be greatly overwhelmed by other verses. And you could probably whittle it down to three or four if you're going to hang the true, true traditionalist verses that are hard to defeat. And that's not a lot by any measure. Third thing. There are an infinite number of reasons to worship and obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Avoiding hell should be last on the list. I put it on the list because Jesus used it. You know, like he said, you should avoid this if at all possible. So I think it's fair if he warned to avoid it, then we should say it's on the list. But there are a million reasons that, that come before it. Um, and I think even in our way of presenting Christ to people, there's got to be a million ways to do it that reflect who he is as Lord, Christ, King, Priest, Messiah, Savior, a lot of things other than the alternative to hell. Fourth, we've noted it a number of times tonight, all of the positions that we presented relied on varying interpretations of Scripture, not a wholesale dismissal of Scripture. And I did that intentionally. I went after the people who were going to use Scripture so that we can show there is some honest disagreement, some would say more than some, honest disagreement about what this means. How does this apply to you? There are people who, as Morgan pointed out, will just struggle with this area because they think there's only one view. They think there's only one way to understand this. And you might at least introduce them with the knowledge that we spent gaining that there are other ways to see this. 
You might not even believe in all those different ways, but you can at least show somebody that, look, there are people who struggle with the same text and come to different conclusions. But I think it's really interesting to see Christians honestly struggling with Scripture, honestly struggling with interpretation, and say, we're going to use this as our boundaries for this discussion. Sure, there's ways to go outside of it. And I, like I said, there are theological arguments that don't base themselves in the Scriptures. They're just ideas about who God is and what he is, and those could fill books and books, and we're not going to do those. There are too many of them to support annihilationism and universalism from other perspectives. But it's enough to know that these people can honestly look and say, these are some of my views from Scripture. Fifth, there are many who are going to dismiss Christ entirely or abandon Christianity in the future because of a theology regarding hell. I say a theology. It may be yours. It may be one they hear. It may be one that they see on a sign somewhere. It may be one that they hear in a church. But I guarantee you there are people who are going to walk away from Christ because of somebody's belief in hell. I hope it won't be because of ours. I hope at least it's not going to be because we can't articulate it except in a way that is really a shortcut. I think there are going to be people who will always be troubled with it no matter what. But the purpose of doing this series in part has been for us to learn about different views for ourselves and so that we could talk to other people about them in an educated manner. And you can at least point them in the right direction. I want to say one thing. I think there will always be people who will just reject God for any reason and you can't go after every single person. That's, that's totally their choice. But at a minimum, it shouldn't be because we stated it in such a bad way or because someone else did it in such an odious way. This last one, you might be tempted to just kind of skip over because we're going to end, and I said there were six, and here's the sixth one, so it really doesn't matter. Could you pay attention to the sixth one for just a second? This is a verse. It's 1 Timothy 4.16. The reason we did this series like the reason we do many series is I believe in this verse, and a lot of people don't these days. Paul is instructing Timothy, and he says to him this advice, watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. I know it's popular these days to think that doctrine sucks, that doctrine is dead, that doctrine doesn't save or, or do anything for us, that it actually divides, that we think of doctrine as dogma, that we think of doctrine as something that really we don't need to know. We just need to love God. We just need to have our heart beating in the right place with him. And you know what? There's a reason he instructed Timothy that in doctrine salvation is found. Because if we don't have it right, we're not only going to speak words that are incorrect, that words that could literally not have life but death to other people, but our own faith gets tripped up when we just think we've got it. and It's like some shortcut taken from the Good Times translation. I really do believe this. I argued with a woman this morning in church who was telling me that it's not so bad to take scripture out of context once in a while. I mean, it has so many different meanings that really it'll, it'll find a meaning and God will somehow make it mean what he needs it to mean in that circumstance. I mean, I, I literally felt myself getting hot and it wasn't because it was just warming up. Like, it was so troubling to me. And I, I tried to respond gracefully. It was getting harder. <laughs> I could feel my voice starting to, like, shake. Like, you know, like, it's going to choke the life out of her. Like, ah! Because to me, from my vantage point, I've seen so many people your age and my age who've left the faith, who've checked out, who've doubted God, who left because they were trying to make God fit into a crazy theological formula that they had invented because they were too lazy to get it right in the first place. 
And hell is one of those places that's fraught with this, but so is almost everything else we study. I usually pick the topics we study because I think what is going to trip us up in the future if we don't understand it correctly. So if you've suffered through this series on hell with me, and part of it is I'm not really sure why we do some of these really intensive discussions of a doctrine like hell, because I'm still going to believe what I believe at the end of it, and you haven't convinced me, and I'm not going to change my mind, and then all I've done, hopefully, is to at least apply some of this information so that we could refine what we believe and at least articulate it correctly. Even if you're still believing the same exact thing, that's fine. But articulate some of these things correctly and at least, at least get rid of the bad ideas and the bad theologies because they do trip people up every day. And I believe that when Timothy is being instructed that in this life and doctrine comes salvation for himself and for others, we're in that position. Like, I'm giving you this information, and I hope that you will use it for yourself and for others around you and get it right and be able to articulate things right so people are not tripped up when they find that the mishmash that they're holding doesn't match at all. And the reason is because it wasn't really articulated correctly in the first place. And we thought God to be somebody who he really isn't. And the surprise, well, the surprise made us want to just walk out on the whole thing. So... Those are the reasons that we kind of did this series, and I hope it at least gave us some insight. For me, for me, my application, I think the most thing that I take away is a deep, profound respect for all the people who disagree in this discussion and yet still cling to Scripture. I mean, still are debating the same things. And yes, once in a while they get a little snippy with each other. It's always interesting how people can use such big, lofty words to basically slap people around in, in writing. But the fact that so many Christians can do this has left me in a place where I think, you know what? There is a chance for us to be civilized and unified as we're intended to be, even in such contentious debates as this, okay? So let's pray for that right now, for unity for all the people who are in the church together. Lord God, I want to ask for your blessing over this whole series as we seal it up. I want to ask for your blessing for people who will use this material long after it's done and people that we'll never know and we'll never really be able to connect with. I pray for its use. I also pray, Lord, for everyone who is involved in this discussion, and so many of us are, whether we wrestle with it in our own minds, whether we've thought about it, studied about it. Lord, for all of the different people who are seeking a way forward, who honestly, earnestly, with all their soul, believe in a certain position, Lord, I pray for a unified discussion. I pray for a unified church. I pray that we still are the witness in the world that you are the Son of God because of our unity. That we could demonstrate that even in the most vehement disagreements over doctrinal issues, that we would still love and cherish unity in the body together. And I pray that because I know it doesn't happen all the time, but it is through your spirit that that is possible. And it's through our humility that makes it real. Pray this in your name. Amen.